For those of you who haven't met me before, I'm Matt Williams, uh, theologian, educator, social activist, do different things. More importantly, uh, a husband to Mercedes and a dad to Caleb, um, who I can hear making his, his own little amen noises there. Um, and also, more importantly still, child of God and a servant of Jesus. That's who I am. So the sermon series, or the talk series that we're on at the moment, is about controversial Jesus. Uh, Tim kicked us off a, a couple of weeks ago and gave a bit of an idea of, of what this is about. Um, and you may think it's a bit strange then that I will be talking about the book of Isaiah. Um, there is a good reason for that. Don't worry, we're not just going to um, throw a curveball in and, and change the topic. It is about the controversial Jesus, but the point is that Isaiah actually, in many ways, says as much about Jesus as the New Testament does. So we're going to really talk about three things. We'll talk about Isaiah, we're going to talk about Jesus, and then we're going to talk about us. And what I want us to do to begin with is just think about a situation, a relational situation that you're in, which is hard. Everyone has something which is hard. Everyone has a relationship or a situation which is hard. Maybe it's actually really unfair, the kind of thing that you stew over and you try not to think about, but you wake up and you're thinking about it, you can't go to sleep because there's some injustice maybe you face. It could be a family, family situation, something that's going on in the world of work, even, dare I say it, something in church. And you're just like, that's just so unfair. But it feels impossible to change. It could be a bigger picture thing. It could be your relationship as a citizen to the country and you look out and you think, look at the way things are. There's just, just this powerful force that just seems immovable, that, that's going contrary to, to life, contrary to well-being. It's going the wrong way. And you just feel helpless against it. Literally everyone has some relational situation in their lives which is like this. And it can be really horrible because it just feels completely immovable. You know it's unfair, but you just can't do anything about it. And you get that, that sort of horrible, sick feeling of like helplessness, of powerlessness, of coming up against something that you just can't move. That's even before we talk about some of the, the most evil stuff going on in society. Human trafficking gangs we've been hearing a lot about recently. You get a lot of very occult things happening, which every now and again you get a window into. It's really dark. Horrible stuff that does happen. The question is, what do we do? What do we do in the face of that powerful injustice? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who brings justice. Thank you, Father, that you're with us now. Thank you so much that you love us. You won't leave us. Bless us and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let's look at Isaiah, Isaiah 42. If you've got a Bible, you can flick to it. Um, Isaiah 42. I'm going to read the first nine verses. And this is the Lord who is speaking. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He'll not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take, you out, take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These are such powerful and beautiful words. Um, And I hope that you get the main point of this, which is that God is appointing someone to be a servant, to bring justice. Uh, three, three times, actually, in verse 1, in verse 3, and verse 4, it talks about the servant bringing justice. But actually, the word can also mean judgment. Um, mishpat in Hebrew it can mean justice or judgment. And that's going to that's be a bit important later on, so bear that in mind. So when you see justice, also think judgment. Anyway, the rest of the passage, what you get is something about what this justice or judgment actually looks like when it comes and how it comes. And to get a sense of the gravity of what it actually means to bring justice or judgment in this situation, we need to actually think about the situation, the the world into which this judgment is being brought, brought. And Isaiah has actually already given us a fairly clear idea of the kind of problems that are happening, the kind of darkness that's being faced. Just reading from the first chapter, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case doesn't even come before them. That's what's going on. And what you see time and time again in not just Isaiah, the whole Old Testament, is that idolatry, like breaking relationship with God, leads to all kinds of social problems and and immense cruelty that people um, act in relation to each other and actually in relation to the land itself as well. And this isn't just a problem of other nations. 
This isn't something that happens outside Israel. In fact, those words I read were a description of Jerusalem. So it's pretty amazing that what's going to happen is that this same Jerusalem that's part of the darkness of the world is going to be lifted up and become a servant again that's actually going to bring God's justice. But how is it going to do that when it's such a tiny, insignificant country? And you can forget, when you read the Bible, you're reading from the perspective of Israel. So it kind of feels big. Everything feels big from your own perspective, right? But taken from a global perspective, Israel was politically extremely insignificant. It's one of the the reasons why it's really hard to learn much about Old Testament history from any sources outside the Old Testament. It's because most of the other nations didn't even know it really existed. Politically, it's very insignificant. A lot of other nations wouldn't have known uh, about Israel. And actually, the Israel we're talking about is even smaller than the Israel might think of. Because by this stage, it's split into two kingdoms. It's really just two tribes. It's Judah and then little Benjamin, with Jerusalem as a capital there. And you could fit all that easily into East Anglia. So if you think about that size of place, you get a sense of the scale we're talking about. And it was surrounded by stronger other nations, military and economic powerhouses, not least the Persian Empire itself. And the Persian Empire, which covered like half the size of Europe, so it's big compared to East Anglia, it had gained ascendancy just through military power um, and kept power through imposing these pretty heavy taxes on people. And often enslaved, conquered people, you know, this was a strong, efficient, powerful culture. Many things about it, very clever administrative processes they had, uh, a lot of beautiful artwork, it seems. But still, a strong, dark power that if you were a part of Israel, you would feel absolutely powerless against. So Israel, and we've already learned this in Isaiah 41.8, is the servant who's actually supposed to bring justice to the nations. And that includes the apparently invincible force of the Persian Empire. So what would it actually look like then for justice to come in that situation? It's kind of unexpected. It's unexpected because, first of all, justice comes through a servant. And servant's a kind of nice word. I mean, you could equally translate the Hebrew as a slave, actually. And it is translated that way elsewhere. This isn't like a high position. This isn't an exalted position. This is a very socially inferior position. But yet, a position that's been anointed by God to bring justice. And it's one who's been anointed with the Spirit. But again, this person, this servant, doesn't come and make a big noise. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out. Um, And as we were reading this at the beginning, I could hear my own son shouting and crying out. Um, He will not shout or cry out, but bring justice quietly. And will be gentle. Verse 3, a bruised reed he'll not break, and a smoldering wick he'll not snuff out. You might recognize those words because they come up again in, in Matthew 12 in a description of Jesus doing exactly that. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, alert. We will get to Jesus. But the point is that 
in response to people who are weak and, again, maybe insignificant, the way justice comes is not to trample them or control them, but actually to bring them life, often in quiet ways. And this especially applies to people who are suffering, maybe marginalized. And you get a beautiful description of this if we go on a little bit at the end of verse 6. Because this servant's also going to be a light for the Gentiles. It's the same word as nations. Sorry to keep talking about Hebrew, but the, the thing is, nations and Gentiles are exactly the same. I'm not sure why NIV translates it in two different ways within a few verses of each other. But when you see Gentiles, think nations. When you see nations, think Gentiles. Goim. The point is, these are by definition not God's people. It's not just a neutral term. Gentiles are by definition not Jews, not God's people. Heathens. But instead of seeing them as heathen enemies, look what the servant does. To open the eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. In other words, they're not condemned, but they're served. And I remember getting a real sense of this, um, talking to a young Northern Irish missionary uh, who used to, to say some things about this. I was actually trying to look up last night what she's doing, where she is at the moment. All I could find out is that she's won a, a competition from an ice cream shop in Bellamina. Um, the internet's such a weird place. <laughs> anyway, uh, hopefully she's still doing good work uh, as well as eating ice cream. Um, but Amanda was really passionate about justice and went out to Cambodia uh, to work, really to try to work against the sex trade that was happening there. That was her real passion. And she went full of anger at the men who were exploiting girls in that way. And when she'd come back, she said, you know, she began to see these men differently, as, as weak, as extremely lonely, as... as pathetic in many ways, and her, her attitude had softened, it changed. It didn't mean that she wasn't passionately fighting against the sex trade and, and trying to make sure that, that whatever was happening legally would stop it happening. But the actual men who were involved, she began to see differently. She began to see them as these like bruised reeds, these people who were stuck in darkness, completely stuck, helpless, and needed God's light to bring them out of it. So that's what the servant does. But one more point, and this is persistence in verse 4. He'll not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. It's a tall order, isn't it, to keep on going. Again, if you have in your mind the sort of situation you thought about at the beginning, to keep on going with the confidence that this will change, there will be justice. How can you do it? Where can you get that kind of confidence from? Well, this is where it comes from here. It's because the one who's commissioned the service, servant is he who created the heavens and stretched them out, verse 5, who spread out the earth and all that comes of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. So it's a paradox. The servant's been given an impossible task that can't fail. <laughs> it's an impossible task that can't fail. The problem is, anyone who knows a bit about Old Testament 
we'll realize that Israel did fail. And in fact, what happened eventually is that God had enough of his people's faithlessness and let them be taken into exile. And the really shocking thing that happened was that the one who actually led them back was none other than the Persian emperor Cyrus. Isaiah talks about that in in chapter 45 a bit later on. And he even talks about Cyrus as my anointed Christ in Greek. And things get, the plot thickens. Because once you have in your head that Cyrus is actually involved in this, and Cyrus is somehow acting as this servant, you notice just at the end of chapter 41, when it talks about bringing someone from the north, a conquering military leader, actually maybe it's already talking about Cyrus there too. So the layers in this, Isaiah wants us to realize that this is not just purely talking about Israel, about God's people. It's talking about anyone who God would use, including Israel's enemies. So this is what happens with the servant in Isaiah 42. But we move on to the second part now to think about Jesus. Advent's a good time to to put ourselves in this position of God's people, small little nation of Israel, Even though they come back to their own land, they were still roughly in the same kind of political position in 0 AD. They weren't independent, they didn't have any real power, and they were still waiting for their commission as justice bringers in the world to actually happen. They had this cultural memory, and a proud cultural memory, of being rescued from Egypt as slaves, being given the law. They had these incredible scriptures they weren't actually acting out all the things that they knew that it was their destiny and identity to do. And so from the middle of this people comes a true servant, the true servant. And everything that Isaiah 42 talks about, Jesus actually does. And I think we can see this, especially um, in the Gospel of John, and you can see it in all the Gospels, but let's just have a little look at some of the places in John where Jesus actually does exactly what Isaiah 42 is talking about. First thing, John 1.32, we see that the Spirit remained on Jesus. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. And this word anointed is actually the Greek word Christ or Aramaic Messiah. Christ, Messiah, anointed all mean the same thing. So Jesus is anointed. But the way Jesus goes about things is not just to, to blast in, to go as public as possible, as quickly as possible. Uh, it's not what he does. He actually just turns up at a wedding, doesn't really want to be involved, but he's sort of pulled into it by his mum, and he blesses people with wine without making a big song and dance about it people close to him know what he's done. And all through John we see that when Jesus does things, miraculous things, blessing people, he does it in a way which doesn't try to draw attention to himself. He does some pretty spectacular and controversial things. He chucks people out of the temple. But when he speaks and when he does things publicly, it's usually in response to being pushed into it. And it's also from a position of weakness. He does it alone. He does it as a, as a single, single voice without the backup of a kind of social consensus or the establishment power. One of the things he says when he's challenged in chapter 8 is, I am the light of the world. 
He's being this light to the Gentiles that Isaiah 42 talks about. And then he literally goes in the next chapter and opens the eyes of this guy who'd been born blind. And what you see happening to the guy who'd been born blind is not only that he can physically see, but he actually gets brought out of the darkness that he was stuck in as part of a culture that, that had no longer was able to see God. Jesus calls a whole culture of his own people, the own Jewish people of which he was part, he says, you're blind. You're in darkness. And this guy, he brings out of that. Jesus gets the approval of God in John 12. And his disciples see this, and his disciples think, okay, here we go. We're going to be in a bit of a position of power now. This guy can do all this stuff. God spoke him from heaven saying, this is my son. We're going to take over here. We're finally going to be the country that we're destined to be. But then Jesus does one of the most controversial things that he ever does. And instead of actually taking over, he decides to wash their feet. That's what he does. And to wash their feet is actually to become a slave. Only slaves, especially female slaves, would wash people's feet. And Jesus puts himself in that position as a slave, as the lowest servant possible. And even more than that, he allows himself to be arrested, abused, beaten, and condemned to a slave's death on the cross. A horrible death, suffocating naked, strung up in front of everyone to be seen. That's his identity as God's servant. And in light of Jesus' resurrection, early Christians actually called on Isaiah, and especially the servant in Isaiah, to help him understand what was going on. Especially Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. This is not the kind of justice people would expect. But remember that justice also means judgment. And so as Jesus dies on the cross, he's also bringing judgment. Not just justice in the way we'd usually think of it. In, in judgment, ideally, the guilty are condemned and the innocent go free. But Jesus forces us to actually identify all of ourselves as guilty. By dying on the cross, he, f- he forces us to identify ourselves as guilty. We can't look elsewhere and say we're not part of the world's injustice when we see Jesus die. But because he takes that condemnation on himself, he allows us to identify with him then as innocent. That's the awesome thing about the gospel. And crucially then, from that position, we ourselves are anointed, we're filled with the Spirit, and we're enabled to do good and to face justice, or injustice, sorry, likewise. So finally, on to us now. How do we face injustice? Go back again in your minds to whatever situation you were thinking about at the beginning. And think how it is that we're being called to face that. We're actually commissioned. We're commissioned. 
just in the way that Jesus was. And again, Gospel of John, he says this in chapter 20. Peace be with you, he says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we're commissioned to face this injustice. That is just part of who we are as God's people. That doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom. In fact, it usually doesn't mean martyrdom. Even Jesus didn't face opposition directly every time. In fact, if you read through John, beginning of chapter 4, the end of chapter 11, he withdraws from conflict. It's not the time. And obviously, by definition, martyrdom is only something you do once, right? So Jesus doesn't repeatedly go into the face of battle. And it's important to say that because the situations that some of us might be in are really crisis situations. They might not be situations where it's the call to face it and to suffer from it. You may need to get help. You may need to get out of that situation. It's really important to say that. But there are situations of injustice that we're supposed to face. And I think what we're being called to here is to switch the way we see it and face them as a servant. Think of the people or the group of people or the body that you feel is being unjust and unjust. And think, how can you serve them? It's really hard. Think how you can actually serve those people or that person. Think how you can attend to their needs. Think of them as being stuck in darkness, helpless. And pray. I'm just going to take just a brief minute now just to bring those situations before the Lord and ask him how to face them. Let's just take a minute of silence. Amen. Keep facing that injustice and keep doing whatever it is God's calling you to do in that situation and be persistent because that's the other thing. No matter how long it takes, be persistent. And it sounds painstaking. It sounds very far away from visions of global justice that I know many of us want to see happen. But global justice comes through one unjust situation at a time. And let me tell you, it will happen. It's an impossible task that, will, that cannot fail. <laughs> and it's an impossible task that can't fail because we're commissioned by the same one who created the heavens and stretched them out, the same one who defeated injustice and who sent his son to die, to love us, rise again, pour out his spirit, and come again to finally establish that justice. That's where we are.
Amen.